You are listening to the Mind Mental Health Podcast. We are a group of students at the University of North Texas Health Science Center who are passionate about mental health issues and fighting stigmas. The aim of this podcast is to educate our listeners on mental health and tell our experiences with honesty. We encourage you to consider only what feels best to you and to consult with your medical professional and or support team before doing anything that might jeopardize your physical, emotional, spiritual, or mental health. Some episodes may trigger an adverse reaction. If an episode is beginning to upset you, I advise that you please pause immediately and talk to your support team. With that being said, welcome to the Mind Mental Health Podcast. Let's dive in. This is the trigger warning for this week's episode of the Mind Podcast. The content and discussion of this week's episode involves sexual assault, rape, and sexual violence. If right now or at any time during the episode you feel triggered by the discussion, please feel free to momentarily leave the space at any time. For UNT HSC students, the care team info contact information, the care team with the Office of Care and Civility on UNT HSC website, on-call care team phone line 817-735-2740. Also, immediate and ongoing support is available through My Student Support Program. Tarrant County Community Resources, JPS Forensic Nurse SANE Program, 817-702-7263. The Women's Center of Tarrant County Rape Crisis Service 24-Hour Hotline, 817-927-2737. The Safe Haven of Tarrant County, 877-701-7233. Additionally, there are some national resources for if you or someone you know have been affected by sexual violence. One of these resources is RAIN, which stands for Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. It's the largest national anti-sexual violence organization. It's created and operates the National Sexual Assault Hotline. Centers.rain.org is a website that allows you to input your state or zip code and gives you addresses and telephone numbers for local sexual assault service providers. The National Sexual Assault Hotline, 800-656-HOPE or 800-656-4673. The National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-SAFE or 1-800-799-7233. Thank you. So we just want to thank everyone for joining us this week. We do have a sensitive topic. We're going to be kind of talking about sexual assault and domestic violence. First, we're going to kind of define what sexual assault and domestic violence looks like in the context of this episode. Sexual violence can be defined as any sexual act, attempt to attain a sexual act, unwanted sexual comments or advances, or acts to traffic or otherwise directed against a person's sexuality using coercion by any persons regardless of their relationship to the victim in any setting, including but not limited to home and work. Sexual assault is a term that falls under the umbrella of sexual violence. According to the National Center for Victims of Crime, sexual assault takes many forms, including attacks such as rape or attempted rape, as well as any unwanted sexual contact or threats. Usually, a sexual assault occurs when someone touches any part of another person's body in a sexual way, even through the clothes, without the person's consent. 
and domestic violence is all acts of physical, sexual, psychological, or economic violence that may be committed by a family member or intimate partner in a domestic setting such as cohabitation. For you listeners that have been listening for our past couple episodes, y'all may not have heard my voice before. I'm Alex. I'm going to be a first-year medical student at TCOM, and I was a member of the Masters of Medical Science program this past year. And as many of you have heard my voice before, my name is Christian. I just completed my first year of medical school at TCOM, and I did the MedSci program beforehand. But what many of you don't know about me is that I am a survivor of sexual assault. And so this episode and this topic is very personal to me, which is why we've been leading up to this and been talking about it and discussing it back and forth. But I am here to tell my story and here to give others a more personal antidote of like what this may look like to someone you may know. Two years ago, while I was traveling with some friends, I was sexually assaulted by a stranger, someone that I did not know, but someone that I had met earlier that day. I was traveling with my friends when it happened, and so I didn't want them to, I was like too ashamed and afraid of what they would say or just too in denial about what had actually happened since I was traveling. I just like let it go, pretended it didn't happen. I was in denial. So I continued traveling with my friends, continued my trip until I got back. When I got back from my trip, it's when I decided to go to make a doctor's appointment to get STD tested and STI tested just for get my whole physical well-being checked out, make sure I was physically okay and didn't have anything to worry about. I remember going to the nurse's office and just being very scared to go. I was going to have an event for my current boyfriend and I was really excited to go, but I was kind of in a rush and I was going to be late, but I just needed to do this first because this was the last thing I need to do for me to just kind of like ignore what had happened to me and just continue being in denial and just continue my life and just like, you know, make it go away. And so I remember like going to the, the nurses and the uh, front desk and like, hey, is there any way you guys can see me as soon as possible? I'm in like, a big rush. I'm trying to make this event for my boyfriend. Like I really just can't be late. Like I'm really excited to see him and I just can't be late. And the nurses and the office staff were like, oh yes, honey, like we can get you in as fast as possible. We'll get you in and out just quickly. Um, Like we'll see you as soon as possible. And I remember when they, were, they finally took me back, the nurse asked me, oh, but what is your reason for coming in today? And I remember just saying, oh, I need an STD test. And this was after we had just talked about my boyfriend and after talking to them about how I was excited to see my boyfriend, how I had been dating my boyfriend for a couple years at this point, and just overall just excited to see him later that day. And I was here to get STD tested. I just remember that nurse's demeanor absolutely just changed. Like she looked up at me behind the computer desk and just like the judgment that she saw. And I I just felt ashamed but to me her assumption of me being unfaithful was still better than if she had known my actual truth because I was still too afraid and too ashamed and too felt I felt guilty of what had actually had happened to me for her to actually tell her the truth and after that I got my test results back a couple weeks later and I was good to go. I didn't have any more physical traumas in my body. I didn't have any STDs or STIs. So I was like, okay, great. I'm I'm healthy. I'm good. My body's recovered. So I'm good to go. And I just continued to be in denial. I didn't open up to anyone. I didn't tell anyone. I just continued to live my life and started my master's program and just was overly anxious and 
I mean, I was applying to medical school, so I had a lot of other stuff going on, but I just was a ball of anxiety. And it wasn't until I had my first panic attack and first anxiety attacks that I was finally able to open up to my boyfriend and to my friends about what had happened to me and just tell them what had happened. And I was just like, I'm sorry, but this is what I'm going through. And I was so afraid and so ashamed of it, but their responses were so supportive. My boyfriend at the time was like, I don't want you to ever feel like you need to hide this from me. My friends were like, no, I'm here for you. What do we need to do? And I remember going to the doctor at the student health clinic and opening up to him about what had happened to me. And he was like, sorry for the trauma that you felt. And he's like, I think you would really benefit from therapy. And at the time, we uh, through WellConnect, we were, uh, I was able to get five free therapy sessions and so the doctor and the staff at the student health clinic was able to set me up with therapy, which I was able to go and relish with everything that I learned from, from therapy and be where I'm at today. Well, Christian, I just want to say first off, thank you so much for sharing. I really appreciate you being open and vulnerable with me, but also open and vulnerable in, in this setting. It seemed like there was kind of a point where you wanted to kind of push it back and you know, pretend it didn't happen, move on with your life. How were you finally able to process that? It took a lot. It took a lot to process because as I said, like I was in denial for the longest time ever. I just felt that if I didn't speak about it, it didn't happen. Not that it didn't happen, but that it didn't matter that it happened because I was already past it. I was already better. I was already fixed per se. But it was kind of like I was a broken piece of glass just trying to be held together by band-aids instead of actually being glued back together. And so like I was very fragile for the longest time ever. And just being able to actually accept what had happened to me and not just be in denial. I wasn't just I was pretending that I was okay when I wasn't okay. And going through therapy, it helped me process what had happened and accept it and be like, I wasn't okay, but that's okay. And I'm okay now and that I and I will be okay in the future. And I think that's very important because even though physically I presented to the world that I was okay, and I told myself that I was okay, and I, I believed in myself that I was okay. I really wasn't. And it really wasn't until I faced my truth and faced what had happened to me that I was actually able to accept that I wasn't okay. But that that was okay under the circumstances, that it was okay to not be okay. That led me to heal because I was able to accept and process what had happened and just continue with the healing process and continue with forgiving, not forgiving myself, but, but like knowing that I wasn't at fault because there was a lot of guilt and shame that I was feeling. Like even when I went to go see the nurse to get STD tested, I felt so much shame and guilt that I was okay with her believing and making an assumption that I was unfaithful to my boyfriend because I was too afraid what she would have thought if she had known the truth. And so it was just like being, and now I'm able to like talk about it in such a public way and like to be able to be open about it because I am no longer ashamed of what happened to me. I am no longer feel like it was my fault or feel guilty for it because it wasn't my fault. And like getting past that feeling of guilt and shame was like, it's something that's really hard to do. Even I, I still struggle with it today just because of like society. But it's something that I want to help get past that and help others like be able to understand like they, they shouldn't be ashamed of what had happened to them, it, especially over something that they had no choice over. Yeah, absolutely. So I know that you talked a little bit sort of how you actually have been able to process what happened. 
but that you even sometimes feel guilty and ashamed today. And so, you know, with that stigma kind of of this is of what society gives you and have there been any responses that maybe were not productive? Anything that you kind of felt was not what someone should have said because you felt shamed? Definitely. Like I remember recently, maybe like five or six months ago, I had opened up to a different friend who I had like mentioned something which might have sparked the idea that this had happened to me when we were alone one time. They had asked me like, hey, I'm just going to ask you because I'm just kind of worried about you. Did something happen to you? Are you okay? And so I opened, it to, I opened up to them about what had happened to me and just told them my entire story. And the questions that they asked me were, why didn't you fight back? Why, why didn't you push him away? Why didn't you report what had happened to you? And that just kind of really struck me aback because I had worked so hard to be where I was at. And I, you know, worked so hard to be okay with what had happened to me and to no longer feel guilty or ashamed. But being asked, why didn't I do more? when it was actually occurring, further victim shamed me and made me feel guilty for not fighting back or for not doing the action that they had expected me to. But in reality, though, what you would ideally want to do and what you in reality do are completely different. People always talk about fight or flight, but we don't talk about is that people freeze and people freeze and protect and people freeze to protect themselves or people react or respond a certain way to protect themselves and protect others around themselves and how you respond to a certain trauma or to a certain tension or stressor in your life isn't wrong and so how I responded was what I could do to best serve myself and someone questioning how I responded to that action just really kind of like was kind of detrimental to some of the thought processes that I have worked so hard to improve on. But like in reality, though, like I was able to understand that they didn't, they weren't trying to be malicious. They weren't trying to guilt me. They're just curious. But whenever you ask someone, why did you let this happen to you? It makes them question, it makes them question themselves. And that's not okay because well, I didn't have a choice in what had happened to me. And it wasn't my fault. And so like being judged as if I could have done something or prevented something that wasn't my fault. Like it just, it, it, it hurt. It was hurtful. I, I can't imagine how frustrating that would have been to summon the courage to be able to tell someone, you know, your story and what happened to you and then to respond in a way that wasn't really conducive to helping you feel supported and was from a very selfish viewpoint and when in reality it was they were they were supposed to be the supportive aspect for you but i do understand that like it wasn't malicious and even if they didn't have any intention to make to victim shave me they just didn't know how to properly respond which is why opening up this conversation and talking about what had happened to me and how the responses i got from different people like, which is why what I'm doing today is important because my friend didn't mean to make me feel worse, didn't mean to make me feel guilty or ashamed, but he just didn't understand how what the right way was to support me or what the wrong questions were or what the right questions were. And so I think it's very important to educate others and educate the masses on how to appropriately respond to someone whenever they open up to you and how to be very sincere and upfront, but also be cautious about what you may ask because of how what you ask can be that detrimental to who who's opening up to you.
and how they open up to others in the future. So along those lines, what have been some reactions that you've really appreciated when you've told your story? I really appreciate when people just listen. But sometimes like it's not what they have to say. It's not the advice that I need. Sometimes it just needs someone to just listen and just to be like, I hear you. I understand you. If you need to cry or if you need a hug, I'm here for you. Or if you need me to help you find resources that you need, I will help you find those resources. It's like I have friends that like they don't have the ability to help me, but they have the ability to support me and be there with me to go get the help that I need. And just having that support and being understood, that, that's what's important. And also just knowing that this can happen to people around you, to like your friends, to your family, to your sister, to your fellow classmates, just like knowing that this is a real reality. It's like a sad reality, but it's real. It's every day that you may encounter someone that has gone through this. And we live in a society where it's statistics like you see it on the news you see the statistics but it's not real until you know someone who's gone through that and also just to be opening and welcoming of hearing me because when I was ready to share my story I struggled a lot to even open up and to share to people about what had happened to me because I know it's not easy to hear I know it makes people uncomfortable and I didn't want to be a burden to others with that and so like just being open and welcoming to discussing it and listening and not just be, not shying away from it um, really can be helpful because I am the kind of person that, that likes to talk a lot. I like to talk about what's happening to me and, to, and talking helps me process things. And so I needed to help. My, the way I needed help is like just by opening up to people. And not everyone's that same way. Like every, people process things different ways, but that's just my own personal way. And certain people, when they didn't want to hear it because it's really difficult, it made it a lot harder for me to be to be able to share that and not be able to feel guilty for sharing. Along those lines of, you mentioned the idea of being a burden to someone. And so I was curious, when you're talking to, you know, let's say medical professionals, kind of like the story of when you mentioned that you were, when you were getting a um, STI test, did you feel like you were a burden to them? Or did you feel like maybe that they were judging you? And how is a way that you would have appreciated that they responded? I I feel judgment because with the context I had given talking about like my boyfriend and seeing him later and that I had been dating him for three years, but then I was getting STD tested. I just felt the judgment in her eyes that like I was unfaithful and she didn't, she didn't question why I was there. She didn't ask me why I was getting STD tested. She just looked at me uncomfortably and I was too afraid and too ashamed about what had happened to me to even tell her and you know feeling that like I was unfaithful felt better at the time than her knowing my actual truth just because I didn't want her to feel pity for me or feel sorry for me so it was just difficult to even like me be the one to be like well actually this is what had happened to me and she didn't put any further effort into you know diving deeper into why I was there and so maybe in the future I would have since I was too afraid to open up about what had happened to me Having the nurse or the doctor ask me, like, why are you getting STD tested? Is it asking me, like, have you been sexually assaulted? Have you been sexually harassed? Or are you just getting STD tested to get routinely tested? Just digging deeper into, like, my reasoning to getting STD tested probably would have made me feel more comfortable and more okay with sharing. And I don't know, at the, at the time, I was just too afraid to be the one to bring it up. And so if 
the doctor, the nurse had been the ones to first bring it up might have been uncomfortable for them, but it would have helped me open up maybe quicker or sooner. I know that you also talked about your second experience with healthcare professionals. You know, you talked about seeing the doctor that was working at the student health clinic. How did that differ from your experience with the nurse? What what was different for you? I think what was different is that I, I well, they were the one that kind of first brought it up. Like I was there for unrelated reasons. Like I wasn't there for that reason. But they can just see the anxiety and tension that I carried. And so they went, they, they were kind of worried about me and they went a little further and they like asked me more pressing questions. Are you okay? What's bringing on this anxiety? Like, did something happen to you? Were you in a trauma? Is there something you want to talk about? Or is there something you want to open up to me about? And having that doctor be the one to show that he cared and show that he was trying to figure out what was wrong with me, made me feel comfortable with opening up to, opening up to him and telling him my story because to him, he just was really worried about me and wanted to make sure that I had the resources that I needed. And that just helped a lot. Absolutely. So at this point, this is something that had happened, that's happened a couple years ago. With the stigma that you felt at the time, what's different now? What's different now is just that this happened to me and I was able to go through therapy talk about my anxiety attacks, talk about my panic attacks, what the PTSD I got from the incident. And I was able to work through it where I no longer get panic attacks. I no longer have that anxiety. I don't, I no longer like have it as a thought in my mind every single day. Like I'm able to happily live my life. But what always gets me is that the amount of people who just don't understand that this is a reality that some people face, like me and like other students may as well. I just remember that one time I was I had some friends over at my apartment and I was cooking for them. I had it was for my guy friends. They were over in my apartment for because I was having a really, really bad day because my dog was sick and we were just I was just cooking them because I was meal prepping. I was cooking them all dinner while they were all studying at my table. And somehow I believe we were in our repro we were in our reproduction block in our first year. This was back in January and sexual assault got brought up and someone had mentioned saying oh I can't imagine something as traumatic someone I can't imagine like going through something so traumatic and they had asked everyone else at that dinner table and like do y'all know anyone who's gone through something like this and then another friend mentioned saying when I was a scribe I remember having a patient come in and seeing the trauma and the cries of her and her mother going through was really a horrible experiment I can't imagine going through that I don't know anyone personally who's gone through that. And I just remember listening to them talk about where they didn't really know anyone in their personal lives who has gone through that while I was only standing three feet away from them while they were all in my apartment eating my food. And that just really stunned me how these four guys like didn't know a single person or they didn't believe that they knew a single person who had gone through something like that. And it was just so unbelievable to them that these things actually happened while I was only three feet away. And that just really struck me because these things are real. These things happen. And these things present themselves in different ways. And, you know, being more aware that these things are reality, that these things can happen to your fellow classmates, to your friends, to your future patients, to everyone you can associate yourself with, like really just gives you a different perspective on how to react whenever someone does open up to you. I think that 
that would be incredibly frustrating to, I don't know, to not be considered as someone that that might have happened to and not be considered a survivor of sexual assault just because, you know, you appear as this happy, outgoing personality when in reality, something traumatic has happened to you. And it's like you were saying, just the idea of raising awareness and uh, helping people to understand that it does happen. And it's not just something that only happens in, you know, TV shows or movie or to other people. It's, I'm not frustrated that people don't, like people look at me and you're like, oh, you're too happy or, oh, or whatever. I think I'm just more frustrated with society, with the stigma against sexual assault, with the stigma that like people are afraid to share their stories because they don't want to be looked down upon. I struggled a lot with that. Was the stigma as was was the stigma of like not wanting to tell people what had actually happened or be open with the world because they're afraid about what their future employers are going to say or what their future classmates are going to say or if they're going to get judged on whenever they're applying to a career or to a job. And that, those are all things that I've, I've always thought about. And even when discussing this episode and on if I'm going to talk about what had happened to myself, months ago, we've been talking about this episode and me recording this episode for the past like six, seven months. And I've gone back and forth multiple times on whether I was going to be open and tell my story or whether I was just going to talk about sexual assault in general or even whether I was going to be able to be open and tell my story publicly or anonymously and going back and forth about what the consequences would be on either decision and personally like I decided to be open to the public to the world about like this experience that I've gone through because I think it's important I think it's an important way to educate others and to show that it's real and just to give other support and show other students and fellow classmates or fellow employees in the future that it's okay to be open with what happened to you and not just hide and feel ashamed because why should I be ashamed or why should I be judged over something that I didn't choose to happen? So you successfully completed your first year of medical school and you've also survived something incredibly traumatic. And so where do you see yourself in the future um, just in general? Well, I, would, I just like hope to continue to educate others and continue to talk about like the realities of this of sexual assault in our community and, you know, give advocacy to our patients and to our fellow employees and to our fellow doctors and students. Because, yes, like as a future healthcare professional, as a future doctor, we are going to see patients who've gone through sexual assault. And I think it gives me a different perspective being a person who's also faced sexual assault like it, I am able to understand and relate to them and be able to be more sympathetic and give them the empathy and the voice that they need and to be listened to their stories and just believe them and be able to give them the resources that I wish that I had sooner or be able to treat them as efficiently as I can as a doctor but also I in my future career and even now like I hope to be able to give support and give a voice to my fellow doctors or my fellow students or my fellow classmates who have gone through this and who are afraid to open up or afraid to of the consequences that they might face in their careers. And so I also just want to destigmatize that in, in the career, not just in our patients. So 
So Christian, what is a way that you think that your classmates that are men or your friends that are men or just general, you know, members of society that are men, how is a way that they can uh, handle this issue and get involved? Well, for one, there's one thing to understand that like sexual assault can happen to not just women, um, but to men as well, or to all forms of people who identify with different sexualities. And so just to understand that it's not just a woman's issue, it does occur more with women, but it affects all people of different sexualities, of different nationalities, of different forms of life. And so just to understand that this can be a sensitive issue towards everyone, but also just to not be afraid to get uncomfortable with the situation, not be afraid to get uncomfortable with communication and with speaking up and advocating against it. Because I know sometimes it's like, well, it's a woman's issue. And so they don't want to be, they don't want to be uncomfortable because the perpetrator can be most, most of the time can be male, but just being uncomfortable and talking about it makes it more destigmatized and it makes it more open for everyone to talk about. And I, I have a lot of guy friends and I've honestly have been able to open up to a lot of them and I've been able, I've received nothing but support from them. And it may have been a difficult thing for them to hear and then they may not have known what to say at the t- right at the time, but it just like really helped to know that I was able to find comfort in my guy friends, even though I was sexually assaulted from a guy. And it just helped me like, relieve that like, you know, like not all guys are the same or, you know, not everyone's the same way because everyone acts on their own. And so just, I don't know, relieve some of that fear, but just to understand that you might be afraid or uncomfortable to talk about it, but it's okay. And if you're, the more you get uncomfortable, the more you're going to be able to get your voices heard. I think that personally, you know, when I was asked to do this episode, that was something that I was a little bit worried about because it's, I have three little sisters and it's something that I have been very wary and understanding of my whole life and realizing that this is a reality and this is, this happens. But I don't know that even so, like I felt, I almost felt a little bit uncomfortable in what that may have looked like for this podcast, but I really like what you say about how it's important to get uncomfortable because then that will allow you to be more genuine and it will allow you to hear and listen to the person that's telling you this. Yeah. And I remember discussing this episode and talking about like, Oh, who do we want to speak? Do we want it to be two girls? Do we want it to have a guy and a girl. And I remember really just like, I think we should have a guy as my other speaker because it's very important to get the guy's perspective. I think, you know, talking about it in a girl's perspective and a guy's perspective and as many perspectives as possible is very important. Especially so it's like, you know, you also come in as not only are you a guy, but you also have sisters to worry about. And, you know, yourself, like everyone can face this, not just women. Yeah. And I think that for me personally, it was the idea of like, I don't want to say anything wrong. I don't want to come across as insensitive in any way. But then it's realizing also that sometimes the reactions that you might have that you think are correct are actually detrimental to that survivor's state of mind and the idea that you can't make someone out to be a victim for something that they didn't choose to happen to them. And I've worked in the service industry for a long time and there's a certain amount of flirting that happens. But at the same time, it's I know I've always done my best to step in when I see something going too far and seeing something that could be considered sexual assault and that it's unwanted. You know, there's there's 
flirting, but when it's unwanted, I, I step in and make sure that that ends. Thank you again for telling you, for telling us your story, because it helped me realize that how as a man, this is not something that, although it may, you know, when we look at the statistics, although it generally is perpetrated by men, it's also the job of men to step in and prevent that from happening as frequently as possible. Yeah, and just it's also just to, you know, help educate some men, like they may believe flirting goes a certain way, but just to educate them that with the proper way of doing things and when things can go too far and just, you know, just talking about changing the culture on how someone may flirt or how may someone may act with their female counterparts or even with their other male counterparts. Like I said, like this is something like historically more women face sexual assault, more men are the perpetrators, but it can happen in any shape or form possible. So it's not just one role and one uh, action that there needs to be taken. And there just needs to be a change of culture overall. And also just be very open to be, because like a lot of times when it comes to men who have faced sexual assault, they're too afraid and even more, they feel that guilt and shame even more than a woman because they're like, no, this isn't supposed to happen to me. This only happens to a woman. And so just being, being very welcoming and very, very respectful and being allowing people to open up about their own cases and again not to victim shame them um just really helps people just heal and continue with their lives absolutely i think that one thing that not a lot of men realize that i've been picking up and discussing with people is the idea of like unwanted touching and you know maybe you're moving around someone and you feel like it's necessary to touch them on their shoulder or it's just the idea that that's not really something that a lot of people enjoy all the time. From the right people, of course, it's you know can be seen as a as a sign of intimacy and caring about another person. But unwanted touching in general can just be. Yeah, definitely. I know, like, in a lot of social situations, what's portrayed by the media or what's portrayed about like what's the norm, they should be reevaluated. A lot of times, in certain situations, like those aren't things that you should be doing. Like you said, unwanted touching, like that's can make a lot of people uncomfortable if not all people uncomfortable and as defined by one of our earlier definitions that is considered a sexual assault or sexual violence just because it's like unwanted sexual comments or advances especially when someone is clearly not receptive or clearly just wants the other person to stop you know just be able to listen to that or be able to like see that happening and stop that is what you know we need to as a society get better at and not just with that, also just like whenever someone does opening up, people are afraid to open up for a variety of things. Like I know it was like the whole Me Too movement, it did open up the conversation to a lot more people where a lot more people were able to speak up about their truth. But there's also a lot of victim shaming happening, a lot of questioning people's intentions and why they opened up to begin with. And that is something that like also prevented a lot of others. I know for myself, like I was afraid to even speak about this publicly or even to others because I was afraid that I was going to get judged for going to therapy to begin with, just for even attending therapy because there's a whole stigma against mental health and there's a whole stigma against PTSD and anxiety and like all that. And so I was afraid to talk about what had happened to me and the therapy that I even went through because of the anxiety attacks. But it... I think it's a very normal response for me to go through all that. And like, I'm not ashamed to have gone through that because I did go through something traumatic 
and therapy was very helpful. And I just want others to feel that they don't have to hide what they've gone through because out of fear about what people are going to judge them for. Especially like with our classmates, like we're going to be doctors. And so you're afraid of that stigma, but it's something that needs to be destigmatized because we're human. We're all human. Kind of going off of that, it's just what bothers me and what really bothered me about the Me Too movement was the idea of survivors of sexual assault coming out and having the courage to share their story and to be for it to be discounted in any way and for them to say, well, you know, maybe that person wasn't telling the truth or maybe they're not remembering it correctly. And I think that's just a very, it's something that's really bothered me because I think men have this idea of, oh, well, what if I get wrongfully accused of sexual assault? And what if this happens? What about my reputation? What about this? And it's like, that's a very selfish thought because they're not even considering that about what the other person has gone through and what the victim and survivor or what the survivor of sexual assault has gone through. Because I, I don't, that's something really frustrating that I saw come up because you shouldn't have to be scared of that if you don't sexual assault anyone. It's pretty straightforward to me. And so. You're right. And I completely understand that it disvalues a lot of people opening up. A lot of people were like, were questioned for opening up so late but even in my own circumstances I was in denial for such a long time so it took me months to even open up and let alone other people have gone through different different situations where it's taken them years to open up and so like them being disvalued or not believed it, it, it can be detrimental to their mental health and to their what their perception is and like you said in reality like the people who give false allegations or make a fake sexual assault case, that percentage is way less significant than considered to someone who's actually gone through it. It's not very likely for someone to come up and like lie about what what happened to them or lie and, and accuse someone else of, you know, doing it when they, in reality, they did it. When someone does open up, you know, we have to realize like, to believe the victim or to believe the survivor and like if they're opening up to know that like they might not that they don't have any malintention that they're just are finally able to be brave and share their story with everyone else because like you said though like if you know if you are not a rapist if you didn't sexually assault anyone like you don't you wouldn't have anything to worry about and even then like even with myself it took me months because I was in denial for sexual assault but it, it also took me years to even say that like I was raped I would always just disvalue myself and say I was sexually assaulted but I was too afraid to even say that I was raped you know we have to give a voice to those people to be able to be comfortable because it can take months to years to even be comfortable with and accept what had happened to them absolutely Well, Christian, I just want to say thank you so much again for sharing your story and having this discussion with me. I mean, I know that personally, it is something that should be talked about more. And even though people are uncomfortable, it's a necessary discomfort. Well, thank you so much for listening to me and conversing with me and talking to me about everything that I've gone through and how I wish things would have gone and how I am succeeding and, and what I can do to help others as well.
We know that because of the sensitive nature of the topic of sexual assault and domestic violence, we here at the Mind Mental Health Podcast may not be the most educated on this issue and may not have the most expertise. Therefore, we did some interviews with people that were more, were more educated on the subject. Yes, um, we understand that like, even though we have our own different perspectives, uh, either classmates or fellow allies of survivors, or even me personally who have gone through sexual assault, we understand that there are certain professionals that are better know how to handle these kind of situations when presented as a healthcare provider. We would like to present an interview with Connie Housley. She is a SANE nurse at JBS. So, Connie, I know that you work at the JPS Health Network. You're a registered nurse, and you're also the SANE clinical coordinator. And so could you give us a little bit of a background on what a SANE nurse is and what your role is at JPS? Sure. I am a nurse. I'm an emergency room nurse here at JPS for the last 19 years. And being a SANE, SANE stands for Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner. It is a nurse who's been specially trained to take care of victims who've been in an abusive situation, specifically sexual assault. And so we have special certifications to allow us to better care for that patient population and collect evidence, work with law enforcement on these cases in the district attorney's office. So basically, we're nurses who have advanced training in taking care of victims of abuse. So when you have a patient that comes in, what are some of the signs that you look for? What does the process of a forensic examination kind of entail? Well, here at JPS, we take care of patients who've hit adolescence or adults. So to be seen here by one of our sexual assault nurse examiners, they have to meet that criteria. We work very closely with the children's hospital to take care of kids that may have that same outcry. Basically, when a patient presents to the emergency department for an outcry of sexual abuse, they've either came in from the front, they may have, you know, talked to the local crisis center, they may have Googled it, they may have talked to somebody who's had a similar experience, but patients who come in from the front typically haven't reached out to law enforcement yet. And so there's different ways that patients can present here. So one of them is coming in through the front and being triaged and basically starting from the beginning of helping them notify law enforcement, make sure that they don't have any life-threatening injuries that we need to have a physician look at first. And then we start the process of calling in our same nurse that's on call for the day. Patients can also be brought in by law enforcement. So maybe they've made the outcry to the police and then the police will bring them here. Or maybe they've came by ambulance because um, they were in a, you know, a life-threatening situation that they needed an ambulance to bring them in. So there's a couple of different ways that they can get here and each one unique into what we have to do after that. So if a patient presents to the hospital as an adult, they have a choice to report that to the police or not. So very next steps are determining on what their wishes are to report. And some of those are education about the differences in reporting and not reporting. So we'd like to just make them well-informed about those decisions and then help them through that whole process. If someone's already 
notified law enforcement, then we can go forward with actually doing an examination on them. Again, all of our patients that present here, we want to make sure they don't have any life-threatening emergencies. So a physician will come in and ask them some medical screening questions, which is always important. That's kind of the, the long, short answer. Obviously, there's a lot more to the examination process. I don't know if you want me to get into that, but... I'd love to kind of hear just a little bit. You know, I know that you were mentioning you would have the patients would come in and they would go through triage. And so when there's a point when the SANE nurse gets called in, what does that look like for you? You know, when you're seeing the patient and stuff, and then what actions from there do you choose? I know that you were kind of mentioning that, uh, you know, if they came in on their own, then it would be would they want to talk to law enforcement? Is there any kind of follow-up that you do as a SANE nurse? I was just kind of curious as to what maybe a visit might look like. Okay. So... Basically, like I said, we have a nurse on call 24-7. So once it's determined that we have a patient that's here that needs our services, the charge nurse will call us in. We also have a crisis advocate that's called at the same time. And so basically that alerts the team. And we meet at the hospital. We have a maximum of one hour to get here. The advocates have 30 minutes, so there's someone with them pretty much immediately, especially if they're alone. That's very important. Once we get here, part of that is introducing ourselves and again, trying to eliminate any fears that they have in this process. And then we set up our room. Basically, a sexual assault exam is going to consist of, if it's within the 120-hour time frame, which is what law enforcement has recognized as the amount of time that you can collect evidence, forensic evidence on a patient. And so that's going to entail using a forensic evidence collection kit. So we get that set up. And then we have a special area in our emergency department that it's quiet. It's away from the hustle and bustle, if you will, of a busy emergency department. And so what our hopes are is that this makes the patients feel a little bit more at ease, a little calm, you know, calmer. And so that we have a suite, which consists of a small waiting area and an exam room. But once we set up, we bring the patients into the exam room. One-on-one, we want to build that rapport and so that they feel comfortable in talking about what has happened. And so we start out with some, you know, demographic information and conversation about medical history. And that kind of helps open up the door into eventually talking about what happened and what brought them here. And so that that few minutes is really important. We want to make sure that they know that this is a judgment-free zone and that we we care and we're we're very happy that they that they came here because most people don't report this. And so we want to we want to build that rapport and build that positive relationship right off the bat. Once we start talking about that, we we need to know the history about what happened. And this is very important information. A couple of reasons. One, it allows us to look for injury and evidence. So every time they're talking to us, we are thinking about where are we going to look for injury and where we might need to collect evidence. But it's also important for law enforcement and the district attorney's office that may uh, try these cases. One, we've found that sometimes patients feel more comfortable talking to a nurse 
about what has happened rather than talking to law enforcement. And sometimes they may tell us things that they may not feel comfortable in saying to a police officer. And this is important, again, because it gives law enforcement a better understanding about what's happened. And if this case should go to trial, we're allowed to recite their history because as medical professionals, we're not held to the same hearsay rules and because our purpose is evaluation and treatment of the patient. So it's important for a lot of reasons. And based on that history is how it's going to lead our exam, where we're going to look for injury, where we're going to look for evidence. And then at the end, when we've done a full exam, head to toe and a a pelvic exam, we will treat prophylactically for STD prevention. Once we've finished that, we give resources for our crisis center so that we can help them get in contact with counseling services after the fact. Wow, thank you so much. That was that was very detailed and I can <laughs> I can picture exactly like what you were talking about through and through. I know that you mentioned kind of fostering a judgment-free zone and mm-hmm. So for example, I know that you have experience in this, but when it comes to just generally other people that may not have had experience, like what are some appropriate responses and questions to ask a survivor when they open up to you and share their story? Because yeah, like I was saying, you know, sometimes people have unintentionally like victim shamed when responding to, or when responding, and even if they're unintentional, it can shame them and be very damaging to the survivor. And so could you maybe give us some language that's supportive and appropriate when engaging in these difficult conversations? Sure. I think first and foremost, it's important to know as a provider that it doesn't matter what you were doing. Okay. I get this, I would say probably 99% of the time that I, and maybe more than that, maybe every time, because I'll ask the questions if this is how they were feeling, they had some guilt and shame about maybe where they were, or if they hadn't done a certain thing, if they hadn't went here. It's always self-blame, guilt, and shame that they're experiencing at the time. And so I think letting them know that we don't care where you were. This shouldn't have happened to you regardless of the fact that maybe there was alcohol involved and that's made them ashamed, you know, or, you know, felt to blame. And I think we need to, as providers, let them know that up front, that we want to let them know that it, do, it doesn't matter where you were, what you were doing. You weren't responsible for this and you didn't ask for it. I think getting that out there in the beginning will allow them to open up as long as they know that you, you know, that you're supportive and you're understanding. Um, I think we live in a society that even though general public may not realize it, but those are things in our community that are believed, you know, if you hadn't done this, if you, you know, hadn't been here, or if you weren't with that person, you should know better. It's always in our face that it's our fault somehow. And so I think just getting that out there to them in the beginning is so important. And that's usually how our conversation starts when we're doing our interviews. Kind of going off of that, just generally, like, 
how involved are like rotating medical students and resident interns? And, you know, how can they assist the team? Because I know that you were talking about the idea of breaking the stigma and just ensure and just reassuring the patient that by all means, it wasn't their fault and they don't need to feel shame for anything that happened. And so are medical students and interns involved in that process? And if they are, is there a way that they can help and assist the team? Well, you know, they're not necessarily involved in it if someone just comes in for that. But what I what I don't think that people realize is that this is happening way more than is being reported. So if we're seeing, for example, in a busy emergency department between 300 and 400 patients a day, someone in that mix has been affected by this. And I think that a lot of times it, ha- it may have to do with patients who are coming in for different reasons. So let's say patients who come in for some type of psychiatric, whether it's an overdose, whether it's depression, anxiety, different things that have to do with mental health. That's where you can help. That's where you can ask the right questions. I think an abuse screening is so important on all patients. And what to do with that information once you get it. If you've built that rapport with your patients and you're actually someone is, you know, they came in, let's say, for overdose, and somebody really is interested in knowing why this happened and then finding out that there was some traumatic event that led to this or they've been dealing with years of abuse. I think a lot of times in medicine, and rightfully so, I've been an ER nurse forever, we're focused on the medical. And so the medical lab results, all of that become the main focus when we're getting down to the whys. You know, that's one population. You may have someone coming in just for STD testing, right? We'll come to find out they just want STD tests because there's been some type of sexual abuse. So I think, yes, residents, interns, medical students can definitely help. I think you just have to dig sometimes just a little bit deeper and look outside the box of that medical complaint. Okay. Thank you for your answer. Um, <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, because, you know, I'm actually going to be starting medical school in July. And so it's the idea of being aware that we're treating patients, like you were saying, not just medically, but like as mm-hmm. an individual and holistically and realizing that past experiences are going to be influencing current experiences and behaviors. And so I know that when we were saying, kind of talking about how, you know, residents and uh, medical students can get involved. So I was just curious, are there signs and symptoms that heighten clinical concern for sexual assault? And I was just curious, we were just talking about the medical, are there additional, you know, maybe behavioral that you can kind of see also some of these symptoms that you may notice that can indicate that that has possibly happened to this patient? Well, again, like I said, I think we have a lot of opportunity with our mental health patients, whether that's PTSD, again, overdose acutely, those kind of things. I think there's a big opportunity there. And they may not be acute cases. It could be chronic. It could be something that's happened for years. It may have been something that happened in childhood and they still just have not been able to have the right type of counseling and um, get any type of services. I've had patients that come in and I ask them, 
why now? What made you decide to finally be able to feel confident enough and supported to do this? And they would say, nobody's ever asked me. (laughs) I thought, wow, that's, you know, that means that we need to do better. And so I think, again, just knowing that we need to look at that in our mental health population, patients who obviously have some obvious signs and symptoms of abuse, whether that's physical. We see a lot of sexual assault cases in the IPV, uh, domestic violence. So patients who come in who might minimize these or these injuries or may have repeat visits for things that just don't clinically add up, falling down the stairs or having being with a person who speaks for them Sometimes that, that sounds obvious, but I'll, I've always told my staff to trust that gut feeling. If you think something's wrong about a situation, investigate further. Something just doesn't seem right about this. Multiple visits to the ER for trauma, that kind of thing. I think we just need to look into it a little bit closer. The sometimes frustrating thing for medical providers is because domestic violence, sexual assault, in adults is not necessarily a reportable crime. We can give resources and we can, you know, give information, but until a a person is really ready to receive that, that's about all we can do. So sometimes I know that's frustrating for healthcare providers, but those are some of the, you know, kind of things that you want to look for, but really your gut feeling, I think goes a long way. So I know that you were saying that you have been an ER nurse for 19 years. I was curious, how long have you been trained as a SANE nurse? So that would have been in 2004. So what, 16 of those, 15 or 16 of of those years, yeah. Okay, wow. I was wondering, what improvements have you seen personally since you started your career as a SANE nurse? And are there any areas of needed improvement that you've identified and that we can as future healthcare professionals and just residents in general, what can we kind of do to help bring about those changes? Well, obviously we've come a long way since 2004. One of the biggest changes we've had was the non-report law. So in 2009, we were able to care for patients who didn't want to report to law enforcement. And what that does is that allows them to receive all of the services just as they would if they were were reporting. It allows us to collect the evidence, document everything like we would, and it allows them to save this evidence, not be tested, not sent um, to law enforcement, but it allows it to sit on a shelf at the DPS lab in case they change their mind. So now they have that option. And I don't know that that's information that's widely known. I don't think people sometimes realize that they can have these same services to make sure that they're okay and to receive counseling afterwards. I think it's important for them to receive all of those services regardless if they want to report it to law enforcement. And then they have the option to change their mind. So let's say that they're not feeling like for whatever reason that this is something that they can do right now. They have five years to change their mind. They have five years to report it to law enforcement and we've saved that evidence. And so I think that's one of the biggest changes that's happened over the years. 
I also think that our relationships with law enforcement and helping be a facilitator and helping patients make those difficult calls, I think those definitely have improved over the years. I think educating, we work really closely with educating not only our colleagues with law enforcement advocacy centers, but also the general population on what sexual assault looks like as far as, you know, myths on sexual assault and how the society believes that it looks one way or that a patient will appear this way or there needs to be a lot of trauma. So I think it's a continual process, but I do think we've come a a long way some of the media, you know, the Me Too, Me Too movements and has brought a, a broader, uh, making people more aware. And so I think we're coming a long way, but I still think we have a lot of work to do. Absolutely. Was there anything that you've noticed that we need change specifically on that you believe the future healthcare professionals could focus on? For example, UNTHSC or other other health-based systems in the state of Texas? So you're saying for like in healthcare, where could we, what could we do better? Yeah. What is there stuff that we can do better for the future? Cause you know, you were saying that there's still a long way to go. And so is there anything that you think that we could do as future healthcare professionals and current medical students? I think in general, sexual assault's a hard to- a topic to discuss. And I think just getting comfortable with asking those questions and getting, letting your own personal beliefs on that. It's funny because even in our healthcare environment, I, I still have people that I continually educate here about, again, what sexual assault looks like. I think knowing that and knowing that most people are assaulted by someone they know. It's not necessarily stranger sexual assault cases. And I think just knowing all of those things is doing better. Uh, But believe me, doing this for so long, it's a continual process. I oftentimes people will want to say, she didn't really look like she was assaulted because of a way a person may appear to be smiling or laughing or it doesn't seem to be traumatized enough. I think educating, especially healthcare providers, on what the brain does during trauma and how that's one of the most fascinating lectures and information that I've that I've had, and that is all of the hormonal responses that your brain does after a traumatic event. And I, for most people, I don't think they understand that and the, and the reactions that you'll get. So I think that's that's very important. Absolutely, and. Yeah, it's it's kind of incredible to think just the brain is very complex in and of itself, but how, like you were saying, how it just manifests in different ways in different people. And then again, just being open to that discussion and being able to talk about it successfully. No, I was just going to emphasize again on all of the different cascade of um, changes that goes on. I mean, it makes sense, but may, one may not think about it especially when you're assaulted by someone you know, but that whole, you know, fight, flight, or freeze response that we have when we're faced in an emergent situation. And again, if we can just get the opportunity to talk about that and tell, one, it makes our patients feel better when they're wondering why I didn't run 
the normal me any other time, I would have been a fighter, but this time I froze. So understanding that and being able to communicate that with your patients, it makes so much difference because we're able to do that now and it helps alleviate some of that guilt and shame when they know that that was a response that they had no control over. Our brain took over. It sensed that we were in an emergent situation, and this is what happened. Very impactful to patients when we tell them that. So I think it's important that our healthcare providers can understand that and then also communicate that back to the patient. Absolutely. I was also wondering, are there any trends in Tarrant County sexual assault victims and means of perpetration that aren't generally understood by the, or that aren't well understood by the general populace? You know, I think that's, we touched on it before, but most people think when you think about rape and you think about sexual assault, it's what we've seen in the movies. We want it to be the person who comes in your window and puts something over your mouth and blindfolds you or walking down a dark alley and they and they grab you and put you in the truck and drive you somewhere. And I'm not saying that stranger sexual assault doesn't happen, because it does, but the majority of cases that we see, and it's not unique to Tarrant County, it's everywhere, but it's someone that we know. It's someone possibly that we trusted. could be a family member. It could be a family friend. We could be in a situation where we didn't feel like we had to have a guard up or that we needed to be concerned about that. And so I don't think that, I will be honest, when I started doing this, I didn't realize that the majority of the cases that I was going to see was by someone that the patients knew. And so I don't think that that's well known to the public. And so when you think about that, it kind of changes things as far as just our view on what sexual assault is. And again, the patients don't realize that that's what it is either because they've been led to believe that it is the stranger type sexual assault. So I think that's one of the most important things is that, yeah, this is what it is. I know that with everything that's been going on with the pandemic, how has COVID impacted your team and your patients in this way? Well, I will tell you before, well, right at the shutdown, right when everything got different and kind of the world was going faced with this new, this, this new, I wouldn't say normal, there was nothing normal about it, but this new way of the way that we were going to have to, we were isolated. We weren't, you know, all of that stuff that happened probably the beginning, mid, mid March to April, everything changed. So obviously that was different. And what we saw was we weren't seeing people. We're in the emergency department. And even though we relocated our suite to an area where we felt that it would be safer for them to come in, we still offered our services. We got that information out to our whole response team, all of our jurisdictions, police jurisdictions that we were working with. Despite that, we weren't in we weren't seeing the patients that we normally see. Our volume went down fifty percent for the month of April. And I was discouraged because I knew it was happening. I knew it had to be happening still. However, people were staying at home. And so there was, you know, there was that. It may have been a decrease. And then after 
Texas opened up and started allowing 25% more people in stores and restaurants and that kind of thing, first of May, everything went haywire, (laughs) if you will. We were seeing multiple patients a day. I had five in one day once, Mm -hmm. and they were violent crimes. These were strangulation cases. These were more trauma um, than I had seen in a long time. I couldn't tie it to any other explanation other than this has been happening, and now it's just become a lot more violent. And, you know, there's, there's thoughts on that as far as people being at home and and what I mean at home, the perpetrators, were these, were these happening because of, you know, loss of job and stress and those kind of things? Not that that, I'm not minimizing or making that okay, but is that why we were seeing this, is that the stress level is much higher. But definitely saw an uptake in the severity of the cases in the last month or so. Mm. Wow, that's... Um... Wow. Definitely unfortunate. Yes. I know that we were talking earlier about how essentially the act in 2009 was allowing you to still treat and care for survivors of sexual assault that um, maybe didn't report to the police. But how do you respond to a survivor who's afraid of the court system or that's afraid to tell their family or just isn't able to report due to the circumstances of their assault? So again, I'm glad we have the option. A lot of people don't know that. And there's lots of reasons that, you know, people may not want to report it. And we talk about that. Some of them is information or education on the process. They didn't know, you know, this or that. So our job in the beginning is to give them all of the information to make that decision based on whatever it is. And if we can help alleviate any of those fears by just giving them, you know, the education and the information on whatever that's making them feel that they don't have a choice to report it. Making sure that we educate them on that is very important. Sometimes it's just because they didn't know, I'm trying to think of a situation, that Well, here's the situation. Sometimes people don't know if they were assaulted because they were blacked out. And so they don't feel like if I can't report a crime, then I'll just do a non-report. Well, part of the process in a sexual assault exam is getting forensic evidence. So that biological DNA would be very important. They don't understand that you can report it even if you don't know that something happened. There's reasons why you've came to that conclusion and made it here. So sometimes it's just about information. But sometimes, like you said, it's relationships with law enforcement or it's I don't want my family to know. And after they have all of the information that we can give them, I always tell them, we don't live your life after you leave here. And so if it's your decision after all of the information that we give you, we support you 100%. You know, maybe this is something that you just in a few days want to talk to your parents about or talk to your spouse, whatever it is, you have the ability to change your mind. Um, And we'll help them with whatever it is that they feel they need. But again, at the end of the day, we don't uh, live their life and we don't know 
how reporting could affect them later. So we just want to make sure we give them the information that they need to help them make that informed choice. I know like with the recent Me Too movement, many survivors have broken their silence to share their experiences, but a lot of other ones have remained silent, kind of worried about what the perception might look like for future employers or just afraid about what it might mean to speak out regarding their careers or their personal life. How do you think we break that stigma? I wish I could. I wish I knew. But I think continuing to talk about it, sexual assault is one crime that it seems as though victims have to prove that it happened. And there's no other crime like that. If you're robbed, you typically don't have to prove to someone or everyone that you're robbed. Pretty much everybody's going to believe you, right? I think when we, when we have people who actually come forward. We did see a huge increase when the Me Too movement came about and became socially acceptable to talk about it. I know our crisis center calls increased, but I think we just have to continue that. Again, it's one of those unfortunate crimes that people just, for some reason, don't necessarily necessarily believe. And we have to, we have to start by believing. Absolutely. And so regarding the aspect of speaking out and what that may look like, you know, many survivors, they want to discuss their own journey of PTSD, mental anxiety, or mental illness and anxiety that may, that they have faced afterwards. But it's this whole idea of, can they do that because of future employers? Would that affect their job prospects? Is that something that they should be worried about? And, and how can that concern be alleviated? It's understandable because of the stigma that mental health has. And so I think that as far as their fears, I would I would hope that they were going to work for a place who was supportive and who would want to understand that you can, through counseling and different things, be a, a good employee and not have these things affect your job, you know, at work. But unfortunately, I think because mental health does have sometimes a stigma, we think that we we can't talk about it. But I also think that talking about it is actually going to make people more aware and more comfortable with try to be more supportive, if you will. So I think, although I would hope that we could alleviate and make people feel uh, supported in their workplace, talking about it sometimes seems a little bit uncomfortable. Thank you. (laughs) I know that there's a you were mentioning essentially giving out resources and are there any specific high yield services that you recommend? Because I understand that, you know, resources are probably provided to victims based on like a case by case basis, but what are some of those high yield services that you recommend and how can we as medical students and future healthcare professionals kind of increase awareness for these services? Well, I mean, in this area, the one place that I would definitely recommend for anyone who has been in a, whether that's now or at any time, is um, your local rape crisis center. The Tarrant County Women's Center here has been amazing resource for our victims in whether it's chronic abuse or, you know, one acute um, sexual assault. And they follow them as far as offering counseling, help with crime victims' compensation, 
plus they have all the other resources. So they're a, they're a huge part of what we do in helping our victims because basically they have all the other resources. And so basically the one-stop place to get, whether it's help with housing or help getting away from an abusive situation, they and many other local rape crisis centers is going to be your, your first your first resource and, and they can help you with all the other things. So I think uh, knowing that wherever you work is very important. Are there any, uh, you know, after receiving the initial care and support from SANE nurses, are there any long-term follow-up or patient management that you and your team do to kind of see how the patient or survivor is doing and coping? At this time, we don't have follow-up. We rely on our crisis center. Medically, typically we will have them follow up with the primary care doctor, but we don't see them again. And so we're available if they would need to come to the emergency department or if they ever needed to call or phone in for any questions, we're available in that respect. And then again, we have our crisis center counselors follow up with them and and look at their mental health. For the most part, medically, their bodies are going to heal. It's the mental health that we're worried about uh, afterward. But no, we do not follow them. If they want to contact us, they can. But we let them know at the, at the end of our visit kind of what to expect. And that's from a legal aspect, from counseling services, and if they need anything medical you know, obviously we're in a, a 24-hour environment, so they can definitely come back if they needed to. Yeah, so it seems kind of in a way that you're, you know, you're very trained to kind of deal with the moment and what's happening. And mm-hmm. while by any means you may not be able to follow up, you're also setting them up for success when they leave. And just, and while also saying, if you need anything, of course, we're, uh, you know, right around, you know, just a phone mm-hmm. call away. So I know we've been talking a lot about the mental health and wellness of victims and survivors of sexual assault. This is a mental health podcast, and I have to say, I'm I'm in awe that you know you've done this job for 14 years, and I think that's incredible, and I think that shows really like how can you are to be wanting to able to help help these people and help these survivors. But I also wanted to ask just in general about your mental health, you know, because during our first meeting, you touched upon the emotional hangover. That's a natural part of someone that's in your position. And a lot of our listeners are aspiring healthcare professionals. Could you give us some insight into the realities of caring for your own mental health and well-being while remaining present for your patients? Yes. One thing I think that was important when I first started doing this, I did it because there was a need in the department. And a few of my colleagues and I went through the training and we and we started clinical training and then practicing on our own. And I didn't know, again, I hadn't personally been affected by any type of sexual abuse. So I wasn't coming from a any personal experience. And for me, that was probably, you know, that was important that I didn't have those other experiences, I think. But when I started doing this work, it was unlike anything I'd ever done in the emergency room. It was the first time that I actually had one-on-one with a patient. I only had one patient at a time. 
and I could give them fully without any time constraints, whatever they needed from me at that time. Now, having done that for several years and many, many, many cases, I found that this is exactly where I needed to be. And I found that in each of these unique cases, everyone's different, everyone's story's different, even though they may sound similar, if that makes any sense. But yeah, when you think about it, I only hear really bad things. Everyone that comes to me has been affected by a crime that has happened to them. And if you think about it, that is, there's never really any good stories that come out of that. Where I had to, whether it was consciously or unconsciously, come to terms with that is bad things happen to really good people. And they are seeking our services. They had, despite whatever myths or thoughts about sexual assault and rape are in the society, they were brave enough to come here. And so I made it my mission to be the person and run a program where we were able to give them everything that they needed at that time. And somebody has to do this and somebody has to do this work well. And so I pride ourselves and our program, my nurses and myself, on doing just that. And I think that's how I've been able to continue to do this work for so long is because somebody has to do it and somebody has to do it well. And when I can see a change in a person that walks in to a person that walks out of here and I can see that change, then I know we're doing a good job and somebody has to. And so again, I want to be the ones to do it. But when I leave here and I shut the door and I shut the light off, that's work. And I feel like we've done a good job. I don't focus on the ugly stories that we hear. I focus on making and helping and being a part of their their healing through this whole traumatic experience. And I just think that I put the focus on something different than all the negative. And I encourage my nurses to do the same. That's not to say that certain cases don't just get to you. And that's why the 10 of us have a very close relationship. We meet monthly and talk daily, probably, and are there for each other. If we've had a bad case or we've had that multiple cases in a day, I think you have to stay in tune to that for each other and be able to take a shift if someone just feels like, I just can't do anymore. I can't. After a busy night or, you know, an on-call shift that was a little a little much for them. We're all there to support and help out. And so I think that's how we've successfully done it for all of these years. It seems like your sense of community and the the bond that you have with your team is is incredible. And it's something that can help y'all continue to do this work, no matter how difficult it is to hear these things. It's like, it's like you were saying the idea that we have done good in the end. Mm -hmm. We've done the hard job and we've done that. And I like the idea of being able to, you know, like you were saying, shut the, turn off the lights and shut the door mm -hmm. and leave that there. And 
take home that sense of accomplishment and that sense of success that you were talking about. Yeah, I never mean it to sound like we're gloating, but I do want to pride them, our nurses, on, you know, this this difficult work. Sometimes I feel like I don't need a pat on the back, but I do need my nurses to know that they're doing important work and that when they some of my new nurses, I've got a couple of new in training and and when they can see the change that they've made in that person, I mean, it, you should see the light in their eyes as a nurse that they've done that. They've done it and they've done it well. It's kind of a unique experience. Uh, like I said, coming from a busy emergency department, sometimes it wasn't, you weren't always able to give everyone that one-on-one individualized care. But in this role, um, it's kind of unique and it's definitely unique to see. So yeah, that's something that we you know pride ourselves on. Absolutely. Do you have a personal reflection maybe just kind of on your journey into this career? Personal reflection. (laughs) I think, like I said, when I first started doing this, I had no idea. I did it. I, I did it because it was something else to learn. It was increasing my knowledge and after, you know, the first three or four years in a busy um, emergency room trauma center, I was ready to expand on that, which was wonderful. But again, when I started doing the work, it was something totally different than I thought. Not, not only were the, the cases different than I thought, not only was rape basically defined differently, it was... A moment where I knew I was exactly where I needed to be. And I think anybody in any career, if you can find that and you feel that you are, you are doing exactly what you need to be doing in this life, you're really lucky. <laughs> and when I found that, I'm like, wow, I feel lucky that I get to do this work every day, that my hospital is supportive, my director, my upper management are all very supportive. And I just feel fortunate that I was put in that position. So I think that's my personal reflection of my journey into this and to continue to teach and educate and mentor other nurses. I'm just, I'm going to keep on. (laughs) I know that you're very passionate about wanting to have, you know, wanting to get this message out and wanting to let people know what services they have that are available if they were in need. I know that you kind of mentioned those services a little bit earlier, but you maybe just kind of want to mention them again and say also, and then additionally, how we can as future healthcare professionals um, and just the general public, how we can increase awareness of these services. Yeah, I think what's important, like I said, is to know if it's in reference to sexual assault that you have every community has a crisis center, a rape crisis center. Now, some smaller jurisdictions may utilize a center that's in a bigger county. You know, we live in a large metropolitan area. Tarrant County Women's Center services us, but we also provide services for a total of nine other counties. And so I don't think people understand that, that sometimes you have to go to the bigger area. Uh, larger metropolitan cities, 
but the local crisis center is going to be a 24-hour hotline that's local and can give you services in your area, and that's for sexual assault. If you're needing help with any other resource, housing, say you're in an abusive relationship, your safe haven of Tarrant County is another good resource, or if it's domestic violence, your Tarrant County Women's Center can help you with that as well. There's also a walk-in at One Safe Place, and it's right around the corner on Hemp Hill, which can help with all kinds of things when it comes to domestic violence. Those are the big ones around here, some national ones. People will oftentimes, I read an article right around the time that we were experiencing the COVID pandemic, and the Google search for abuse had increased, I can't remember the number, but it was astronomical. So I think oftentimes people will will turn to the internet and Googling different things about abuse, but definitely turn to your local crisis centers and they can direct you in the right direction. Absolutely. And like you were saying, especially during these changing times with COVID-19, having these resources and knowing that they're out there along with these, with Googling and kind of looking into what that may mean, it's like you were saying, it's important to kind of have those available so that people can understand what they can do despite having to socially distance or being unable to leave and, you know, just these changing times um, socially. Yes, I'm sure that it's put people in a situation where they didn't feel like financially they could leave or, you know, lots of different things. And so... Even the stress from that added to any type of abuse, definitely going to want to seek out those resources for their mental health and and well-being. Well, I think at this point, Connie, we've kind of covered all of the questions that we had for you. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention that maybe we didn't ask a question about or something that you'd especially like to touch on? I can't think of anything specifically that we didn't touch on. I mean, I know I focused a lot on being able to communicate, believe, talk about it. And it sounds kind of cliche when you say it, but just because I've done this work and I still know that every day I have patients who feel ashamed and blamed because of what's happened. And I know that only about 30% of people actually report this crime. So we're missing, if you think about it, about 70% of the population who have been assaulted who never make it to the hospital to receive services or to report to law enforcement. So I know we're still, we still have work to do. And so when I say that and the believing and the alleviating the shame and the guilt, I can't emphasize it enough because we're still missing patients. We're still missing the opportunity to help people with services, with counseling, even if they don't want to report it. I just think we have an opportunity, everybody. And I think getting that message out there is so important. And knowing that it doesn't matter if this was 20 years ago, if they need services, they're available. And so I think people maybe not understand that either. I think that's pretty much it in a nutshell is, is, educating and and believing and supporting people who've been through some traumatic times in their life. Absolutely. Well, I just want to say, um, Connie, thank you so much again for your time. I know that at the beginning, we were just doing a little bit of the 
the IT stuff behind the scenes. And so thank you for your patience with that. I stayed out of it because I would have made it worse. And so <laughs> thank you again for your patience. And we really appreciate you taking the time to do this with us. No worries. We are here. If anybody needs any of our services, we're certainly here 24-7. So. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much again, Connie, and have a great week. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Mind Mental Health Podcast. Be sure to check out the episode notes for some resources we recommend. If you are out there and you're feeling stuck or feeling alone, you are not alone in this. Seeking help for your mental health is an important way of taking control of your life. And remember, it's okay not to be okay. Before we go, show some love by sharing this podcast with a friend and rating on whatever platform you may be using. We look forward to sharing new content with you every second and fourth Wednesday of the month. Thanks again for listening.